Would you join with me in prayer again? Father, I acknowledge once again that we are undertaking a, an impossible task to peer into holy realities with the hope and the longing that we might be changed and you would be glorified in the transaction. We plead with you for the work of your Holy Spirit to illuminate, to take our blinders off, to pull away the distractions and the <coughs> obstacles that would interfere with us from hearing and seeing you more clearly today. Lord, I pray that you would give us a vision today, maybe not quite like the vision of John, but a clearer and greater vision of the world and our place in the world you've made and your place over it. For Jesus' sake, amen. In 1948, on Election Day, the Chicago Tribune had a problem. Because of a printer's strike, they had to go to press earlier than usual. The editors of the Tribune decided to report that Democrat Thomas Dewey had won the U.S. presidential election based on multiple polls widely favoring Dewey to win. Two days later, their decision was immortalized by a photograph of President-elect Harry Truman, triumphantly smiling and holding up the Tribune, whose banner headline read in all caps, Dewey defeats Truman. To many pollsters and political observers, Dewey had seemed to be winning all the way from the days and months before the election to election day. But when all the votes were finally counted, it was Truman who won in the end. The vision of the book of Revelation to the Apostle John carries a similar message. It carried a similar message to the early church. In the midst of their suffering, in the midst of persecution, it would have been easy to give in, to lose hope, to believe that the Christ and that those who followed him were on the losing side of history and that Rome would have the last word. And to those Christians, God gave this message through John. It is Jesus who wins in the end. Now, as we look at Revelation 5, we're kind of still in the beginning of that vision. But already there, I think it's quite clear to us what God is saying to the early church. Because as we open up this throne room scene, what we're going to see today is that God is saying through John to the early Christians and to us that Jesus will win. But not only that, but that Jesus has already won and that Jesus is still winning. So if you turn in your Bibles again to Revelation 5, we'll Look through this. Now, Revelation 5 is kind of 
it misses a little bit of the preface of what's happening. Revelation 4, it says that John was invited into the throne room of God. And, and he hears a voice that says, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So he's not seeing what's happening in a sense at his contemporary time, but what will happen at the end of the age. And what he then gets is kind of like, it's like a hodgepodge of words. If you actually try to, I, th- I think I've seen and, and read attempts to actually try to draw what John describes in Revelation 4 and some of the other chapters of the book of Revelation. And it, it, looks, it looks like nonsense. You know, seven eyes, seven horns, uh, wings all over the place. My daughter asked me the other day, she said, so the dude who had the face of a man, like what was the rest of his body like? So like his, his legs were going this way and that way. There was a lion, there was an eagle. The, the language of the book of Revelation, let's just say right up front, is not what we would call ordinary language. Why? Because what John is seeing is not what we would call ordinary, right? It defies language. It defies the words and the descriptions, the adjectives and the nouns that John has in his command. So, so much of the book of Revelation it's almost like a qualified description. It's like you know the movies that say based upon a true story, and you kind of oh I know what that means. Well, he says and the it was like this. He didn't say it was this. He said it was like this. And even when he doesn't make that qualification, we get the sense that John is describing something beyond us. He's also doing something else. He's describing images and realities with symbols, oftentimes. So as we get into Revelation 5, uh, that's kind of a, the, the preface I want to make, that what we're dealing with, I'm not going to get into every single detail in Revelation 5, but what we're dealing with are images and symbols that communicate truths and realities about what he is seeing. And if they're somewhat inadequate, it's, it's John's language trying to describe something that we, even if we have the language to describe it, might not have the imagination to fully capture. Now, for all that, as we get into Revelation 5, what do we see? Revelation 5, 1, we see in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And then John continues, and he hears a proclamation that sets up the dramatic the dramatic center of this vision. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And then silence. And the vision continues that no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy. So first, what are the scroll and the seals all about? Uh, You know, nowhere in the rest of Revelation, when I first came into Revelation 5, I thought, oh, all I have to do is flip forward a little bit, right? But nowhere in the rest of Revelation does John actually describe what's written inside or on the back of the scroll. You would think, right, they're going to, We're going to follow and the seals will start to be opened. Great. So after the seventh seal is opened, then we get to read what's inside, right? It's like, 
opening a package that you get from Amazon. Well, you open it and then you get to see what's inside. No. Nowhere in the rest of Revelation does John actually describe what's written in the scroll. So actually there's quite a bit of disagreement and speculation about what the scroll might be, what kind of scroll it might be, and what it represents. But it seems appropriate, whatever it specifically might have been, to conclude that whatever it contained is connected to what happened as it was opened. As the seals were unsealed, things happen. And the seven seals are opened one at a time in Revelation 6 to 8. And as they're opened, they reveal the beginnings of God's judgments and wrath against his enemies throughout the earth. So, for example, in chapter 6, verses 15 to 17, it says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? They're terrified because the day of God's judgment has come. The day of his wrath has come. So the scroll and the seals, whatever was specifically written on the scroll, they symbolize in some way the triumph of God to punish and destroy his enemies. And the fulfillment or the beginnings of the fulfillment of his promise of a new creation, no longer tainted by sin and death. Everything that was wrong, everything that was broken, all the injustice in the world is finally going to come to an end. God's going to make good on his word. So why, rewinding Revelation chapter 5, verse 3 and 4, does John weep? Why does John weep? Well, it says it's because nobody was worthy. No one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Why does that matter? Well, John intuits what we as 21st century readers or listeners have to infer from the rest of Revelation, that if nobody is found who was worthy to open the scroll, then there is no way for God's justice to be administered. There is no final victory for God or his people. There is no fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament or of Jesus in the Gospels for a new creation when the wicked will be vanquished. God's people will bask in the glorious presence of their triumphant God forever. None of it. It can't come true. It can't happen if the scroll can't be opened, if the seals can't be unsealed. And so John weeps. John weeps because he grasps that everything is at stake here. The persecutions and the sufferings of God's people over the ages, the injustices and the wickedness of this world that we live in, the brokenness and griefs of our world are either finally answered or they are not. If they are not, John knows, then not just the persecution and martyrdom of saints before him, 
But the injustices, the ruthlessness of Rome's emperors around him as he lives in exile, also gone unanswered. If they are not, then human deception, hypocrisy, adultery, betrayal, murder, hatred, greed and envy, arrogance and idolatry, the abuse of power and the coveting of it go unanswered. Or if we want to put it brutally in the context of today's headlines, if they are not, if nobody is found worthy to open the scroll and its seals, then the school shootings of Columbine or Sandy Hook or Uvalde or the abuse of power of the SBC Executive Committee or the invasion of Ukraine go unanswered. Injustice never gets its comeuppance. Wickedness wins. John's reaction comes from his deep longing that sin and death do not get the last word. The griefs and sorrows and ugliness of a broken world that we observe, that we experience, sometimes that we inflict, must not get the last word. And his yearning runs so deep that he weeps aloud. Would we weep like John? Do we yearn and hope like John for justice and righteousness, for the just and righteous God to triumph in the end? Do we long for it? When you read the news, are you overwhelmed by a sense that this should not be and it must not be the last word? In my own life, this kind of longing, this kind of waiting for God to finally show up and set things right became much more personal over the last few years of our time serving in China and then returning to the U.S. a few years ago. That's partly because of the kinds of social injustice that we observed, that we were a part of trying to resolve in part working among minority language communities in Asia. And as we were involved in education, as we were involved in community development, uh, what we saw was that the underprivileged, the marginalized, the least reached, are often the most neglected, the most ignored, and those suffering most from various kinds of long-term, seemingly interminable injustice. That's one reason, but it's also because of the injustices we personally experienced when we were compelled to leave China. The traumas and the stresses that our family experienced when we were made to leave have affected us deeply, and, and frankly, we're still three years later healing from them. But as a result, I'm also more deeply moved by the injustice and the brokenness that I see in the world around me than I was 10 years ago. In the wake of our departure from China in late 2019, I was reading a reflection on the book of Habakkuk by Tim Tennant. In, in the book of Habakkuk, the prophet is wondering 
what's up. Judah has been invaded, conquered, decimated by the Babylonian empire. And they deserve it. And actually, Habakkuk knows it. He says, essentially, that we have sinned against you, O God, so we kind of had this coming. But he has a question lurking behind that observation. And it's this. There is a country even more deserving. And it's the ones who defeated us. Babylon is more idolatrous, more unprincipled, more cruel and wicked. So when do they get theirs? I get why we're getting punished, God. But what about them? And God's answer to Habakkuk? Wait. Tennant reflects on how hard this kind of response is to accept, but he also tells us why it's one we can accept. He writes, in the posture of waiting, we realize just how much we want God to play the short game with easy solutions and quick resolutions. But God plays the long game. He calls us to be patient in the midst of our own calamities and remember that we are called to a life of hope in God's faithfulness. Christ is God's long game. God's plan is not a strategy. It is a person. The Babylonians and all their spiritual heirs who fill the world to this day are finally defeated through Jesus Christ, who sits at the Father's right hand until all his enemies are put under his feet. Now that's not to say that when we see, when we experience, when we feel injustice, the people of God are called to merely be passive. There are ways we are called to be engaged in the face of injustice in our world. But it does tell us that our ultimate hope does not lie in a system, in a politician, in a war, in a curriculum. Our ultimate hope does not even lie in gathering on Sunday mornings. This is just a foretaste, people. This is not the end of the story. We are called to a life of hope in God's faithfulness because God has promised that he will have the last word. God plays the long game and we are called to hope in him. And that's what John has been doing. John's in exile on the island of Patmos and he's not going anywhere. He and many Christians have been persecuted or suffering under Roman rule. And he knows much like what we read this morning in Psalm 41, that we are called to wait on God and to hope in him. But then he has this vision and no one is found who is worthy to open the scroll. And what do you do when no one can open the scroll? You weep. So he weeps. He weeps in despair for a moment. But then he stopped by the words of one of the elders from around the throne, weep no more. Behold, look, 
the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. In John's vision, this turns a corner. We move from the yearning and the hope that Jesus will reign victorious to the realization that in a crucial sense, Jesus has already won. See, as John turns, you got to imagine, John turns to behold the lion of Judah, right? A triumphant lion, a king from the royal lineage of David. And what does he see instead? He sees a lamb slaughtered. He sees the crucified and resurrected Jesus. Jesus is proclaimed a conqueror who is worthy to open the seals of judgment because he was slaughtered like a sacrificial lamb to ransom his people from judgment. Why is this lamb worthy? Why is this person worthy? Look at verses 9 and 10. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Any doubt that he is the peer of the one who sits on the throne, that the father and the son are together worthy? Look at verse 14, 13 and 14, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. Jesus is worshipped in unity with the Father who sits on the throne, not because he defeated his enemies with an army of angels, with overt power, but because he is the Lamb who was slain. The Lamb deserves to be worshipped and to reign because he has already laid down his life in love to save his people from judgment and was resurrected in triumph over death itself. This is the one worthy to open the scroll and its seals. This is the one worthy to judge the nations. Jesus is worthy to reign because he was crucified and resurrected to destroy the power of sin and death. And by doing so, he ransomed people to become God's royal, holy nation in the new creation. Jesus is crowned the lion and worshiped as, the, as one with the father because he laid down his life in love and took it up again in victory. This is what John sees in Revelation 5. And it's the answer to the tears that he wept. Jesus has won already. And Jesus will finally win. But there is one more important detail, I think, to John's vision that we must not miss. That Jesus has not merely won through the cross and the empty tomb and then stopped until his final victory. Jesus who won, Jesus who will win, is also Jesus who is even now winning people from a breathtaking array of peoples from across time and culture and language and nation out of bondage to sin and into his kingdom. See, the storyline of John's vision 
we must not miss is not simply some kind of carbon copy of a North American suburban church. The storyline of John's vision also invites us to see that Christ's death and resurrection are not merely a one-and-done victory in the past. It's not simply a way to say, hey, look, Jesus has already won. Now we wait, and we just sit here, waiting. It's also not meant to say, hey, look, Revelation 5, the throne room, and the anticipation of every tribe and language and people and nation worshiping together. And look, here we are worshiping together. This is just a foretaste. It is a foretaste, but it's not just that. See, in his vision, John hears the four living creatures and the 24 elders singing a new song, celebrating his worthiness. And it says he's ransomed people for God from around the world, from every tribe and language and people and nation. Do you know right now there are over 30,000 languages in the world? That's a lot of languages. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of nations. So look around you right now. Go ahead, look around you. You have to do this. You can't just look at me. It won't work. Look around you. What do you see? Keep looking and just think about this question. Does what you see, I'm not talking about the chairs, I'm not talking about what you're wearing, I'm not talking about the guitars or the piano. Does it look like the churches that the Apostle John might have been a part of? Does it sound like the churches he would have heard singing? Wellspring Church doesn't look much like the first century church. I know, this is like a newsflash, right? It, the, New, the New Testament church was filled with Jews and Greeks and Africans and Syrians, and they were speaking Aramaic and Greek and Hebrew and singing in those languages probably too. In the first century church, there was nobody yet of Japanese or Chinese descent. Nobody who would have identified with Anglo-Saxon or Hispanic or Germanic heritage. There, there was nobody who spoke Korean or English or Cantonese. In his vision, John gets a glimpse of a new song that will be sung at the end of this age. It's not being sung yet. But at the end of this age, a song will be sung honoring Jesus because people have been ransomed by his blood from around the world and from every language and people group in the world in creation, in all of creation, to be God's people. So when you look around you today, look again. Look around you. Go ahead. Stop looking at me. What you are looking at is the fruit and evidence of Jesus still working and winning souls from the clutches of sin and death and judgment. That's what you're looking at. 2,000 years of it. I mean, not that we're 2,000 years old. We're like at the tail end of the 2,000 years, of course. But that's what you're seeing. Jesus is still winning. And when I look around, when I look around this room, I am reminded that we who have been won by Jesus 
are ourselves called to be his ambassadors, to live out, to proclaim, and to lay down our lives, maybe just as Jesus laid down his life, for the sake of the gospel, so that others too may be one to Christ, both next door and halfway around the world. What I see when I look around me, you know, it's a little bit like this. It's like, you know, for the last couple weeks and months, Pastor Sam and Pastor Fuji have been encouraging us to sign up for the Wellspring Retreat this fall, right? And I'm sure everybody already knows what they're doing in November besides me. But, you know, they've been like, sign up. We have the early, early bird discount, then the early bird discount, then the bird discount, and then there's just no discount, Right? And they keep saying, we have this many slots left. Out of 200-something, we've only got 43 slots left. We've only got 21 slots left. Soon there will be only one slot for that lonely person for whom there is still a bed. Right? And they have been urging and encouraging us, come to the retreat. What a great way to build community. What a great way to experience life together for a few days. Now, what would you think if Pastor Fuji were to get up here three weeks ago and say, we have 223 slots of the retreat. We have 126 filled. Done. We're just going to leave the other slots. No more discounts. You can't even register anymore. We took the webpage off the site because we're good. We stand in history at a point kind of like that. Jesus is still winning people. There are still people invited to the retreat. The doors aren't closed. The invitation's still out there. The website is still up. There's still a discount. Jesus has already won, but he's not yet done. The victory of Christ in his death and resurrection, resurrection is the foundation for our hope in justice, our hope in Christ finally winning at the end of this age. But it's also the means by which Jesus is still winning people from all nations to himself to fulfill the vision of Revelation 5.10. It's still happening. And the question I have is what difference does that make for us what difference does the vision that God gives to John in the first century make here and now for the urgency and priority of local outreach and global missions, both individually and as a community, as Wellspring? What difference does it make for us? Now, I have some ideas in my head, but I, I'm going to ask a few more questions and prompt you to think. What difference does it make for you and for us together? What are the implications for Wellspring of Christ's command to make disciples of all peoples here in the Bay Area? What difference should that make here in the Tri-Valley area for how we as Wellspring prioritize how we spend our money, how we spend our time, who we hire on staff or don't hire? What difference does it make? Go and make disciples of all the nations. A vision of every tribe and language and people and nation. There are, at latest count, over 3 billion people in the world belonging to over 7,000 unreached people groups. 
who have little or no access to the gospel. And they will all one day, there will be representatives, every one of them, one day in that vision of Revelation 5.10. And when I say unreached people groups, for those of you who, for whom it's hard to imagine, it's a little bit like saying, well, there's, there's gospel everywhere, right? There's, there's churches and there's, there's, there's YouTube broadcasts and there's radio broadcasts and there's tracts and there's Bibles. Uh, but for the unreached people's group, people groups of the world, it's languages and YouTube feeds and Bibles and churches in a language they don't understand, in a place they can't go, in cultures that are foreign to them. They are unreached because unless someone goes to them, they will never get the gospel. But they are part of Revelation 5.10's vision. They will one day be part of the chorus. So who will go to them? How should that reality shape how we spend our money, our time, our prayers? How should it shape how and where we use our spiritual gifts for the kingdom? How could this vision change your priorities for your career? For the friendships we cultivate? For how we spend our weekends? Or, for that matter, our weekdays? Or, if you'll forgive me for touching on a sacred cow, how could this vision shape your hopes and dreams for those of us who are parents or aunties and uncles or access mentors? How could it shape your hopes and dreams for your kids, for their lives, for their careers? There was a time uh, when I was an idealistic young college student, and uh, the vibe I got in that time of my life was that this kind of vision, this kind of hope, this kind of longing is great for the young and mobile. But let's be real already. We got mortgages. We're settled in our careers. We have kids to raise, right? I mean, that's, that's reality. And so God calls us to a kind of partnership in those kind of works. And none of that is untrue. So for those of you who are college students or going to be, at least maybe, for those of you who aren't encumbered by mortgages or saddled with a job that you're stuck in, uh, maybe this is for you. But what about the rest of us? I think of my friends, Chris and Emily. Uh, Chris and Emily went to college at the same school that I went to out in Boston a few years after I'd graduated. And uh, we were friends for many years because they actually stayed in the Boston area just like I did for a while. And they were idealistic young college students once too. And they were members of our church and they grew up, they got married to each other and uh, they got, they were involved in the church. They wound up settling down, having good, well-paying, stable jobs faithfully serving at our church, involved in ministry. And that was that. And then 20 years later, 
few years back, when May and I were back in the Boston area, we were at a small group meeting that Chris and Emily were a part of too. Same group of friends they'd been in for about a decade or two. Same jobs. Uh, family now with uh, two kids in elementary school. And they were asking the question in maybe different words, does Revelation 5.10 still have something to do with me? And we started talking. Started talking some radical kind of stuff. And we had conversation a few times while we were there in Boston that fall. And then that conversation led to other conversations. I think that was about eight years ago. Those conversations led to decisions, sometimes really difficult and complicated decisions. And those decisions led to changes, and those changes led to moves. A month ago, Chris and Emily moved with their middle school son and their elementary-aged son and landed in Sapporo, Japan, where they are now in language learning and getting involved in church planning there among the Japanese. It took longer than they thought, partly because COVID delayed their departure by over a year. But they're there. So I wonder, are there Chris and Emily's in our midst today? Is that you? Could that be me? Jesus has already won, but he's not yet done. He has already decisively triumphed over sin and death, but that's not the end of the story, so it's not the end of our stories. Because we are still waiting for Jesus' final victory, we are not done because we are still called to yearn and long and hope and even weep together for the day when righteousness will prevail, when sin will be vanquished, and when all things will be made new. Because Jesus is still at work among those whom he's ransomed for God, we are not done. Because we are called to work with God, to labor with him for the salvation of others, to make disciples and worshipers of Jesus from every tribe and language and people and nation. You see, Jesus has won, but he's not yet done. So neither are we. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I praise you as the victorious lion and lamb. The vision of Revelation 5 gives me hope and assurance, confidence and longing for that day. And I praise you and thank you that that's a confidence that is sure and certain because of your death and resurrection. And in the midst of that confidence, I plead with you, Lord Jesus, that by your Holy Spirit, our lives would reflect the reality that you are still winning, you are still working, and that you call and lead and direct and shape us. This is my desire to be co-laborers with you in that work. Amen.